1: Welcome to Special Edition, a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personalities shaping the stories. Special Edition is a production of Intercom Communications. The views expressed by guests are not necessarily those of Intercom Communications staff, management or sponsors. Now, here's your host, Sue Henry.
2: On today's program, Pennsylvania U.S. Senator Pat Toomey stops by our studios to talk about tax cuts, the Russia investigation, and the possibility of some companies offering innovative health care plans for their employees. We'll wind up our radios for a visit from the iconic champion of novelty records, Dr. Demento and learn about a new collection honoring his most beloved discoveries. And we'll get some suggestions on how you can take betting tips to the boardroom when a professional poker player shares her ideas with us. U.S. Senator Pat Toomey first came onto our radar as the leader of the conservative group Club for Growth. The organization championed limited government and tax cuts, arguing these changes could make America prosper. Toomey also authored The Road to Prosperity, How to Grow Our Economy and Drive the American Dream, before winning his Senate seat in 2010. His ideas weren't met with much success in Washington during the Obama administration, but the election of President Trump gave him the chance he was waiting for to work on a simplified tax code and lower rates for most Americans. In December, the tax cuts were signed into law by the president. Senator Toomey joined us recently in the Intercom studios to discuss the recent State of the Union speech, the tax cuts, and the possibility that three private companies might be able to take on the onerous health care insurance system. We start it with the State of the Union.
3: I think it was pretty straightforward, garden-variety State of the Union. The president stood there and went through a recitation of the accomplishments of the last year, which are really very significant. Talked about how strong the economy is. For the most part, the economy really has uh, come back very, very strongly. Talked about his priority agenda items for the coming year. And uh, I will say, to the credit of the president, it was optimistic. I thought it was patriotic. I thought it was hopeful. And um, so a good, solid State of the Union.
2: And sometimes people are are critical of of patriotism and and the fact that he mentioned America. But for crying out loud, he's the president of the. And I, I don't y- understand y- this you know dynamic I, at all.
3: I, I I don't. I never will. I was raised um, in, a, in a family where it was just understood that you loved your country and you respected your country and its institutions and the flag. And, you know, uh, the idea that somehow there's something wrong with being patriotic when you live in the best country in the history of the world. I don't get it. I never will. I love this country and I don't tire of saying it.
2: Very good. Uh, so that's the analysis of State of the Union. And now it's time to talk about the tax cuts, which did actually start to... To show up. And that, that's what we said would be that the proof is in the pudding that they would show up in February paychecks. And indeed, uh, I worked somewhere else and the money did show up. I did get a tax cut. Let's talk about that from your perspective, because I know you put your heart and soul into this tax cut bill. And I, I saw a lot of commentators on TV talking about how this was really your baby.
3: It was a tremendous amount of work, but I really am thrilled that we were able to get this done. Sue, could I mention, I think there's three ways that the folks I represent all across Pennsylvania are already benefiting and will continue to benefit from it. So first, we've seen this wave of uh, announcements from mostly large employers, but not only large employers, uh, announcing pay raises and bonuses and additional contributions to pensions. Over 3 million people across. America already. Many hundreds of companies that have announced this publicly, untold numbers of other smaller businesses that we don't hear from. So that's not everyone, but mm-hmm. it's not insignificant. And that's number one. Number two is what you just alluded to. Almost everyone is going to owe less money in federal taxes for their 2018 income than they did for their 2017 income. That's just because we lowered taxes right we lowered rates we increase the amount of income a person or a couple can earn without having to pay any tax at all we increase the standard deduction we we doubled the child tax credit so people will see an increase in their take home pay directly starting like now mm-hmm. and then the third and and i think over time this could be the biggest of the three actually we've really allowed our business to be much more competitive. We have lowered the cost of running a business and dramatically lowered the cost of making new investment. So a small, medium-sized, or a large company that is looking at buying a, a new, new machinery, new vehicles, new equipment, building a new plant, all of those things are less expensive because of the tax reform, and that means there will be more of them, and people have jobs making that equipment, making those vehicles, making that machinery, and then other people get the job of operating that equipment, that machinery, those vehicles. So this is going to create more jobs, and at a time when the unemployment rate is relatively low, that almost certainly means upward pressure on wages, right. the the jobs number slightly above the average for last year, a uptick in wages. And I think that's going to continue. So uh, the bottom line, the people that I represent are going to earn more. They're going to keep more of what they earn and they're going to have a higher standard of living. That's what this is all about.
2: Now, you know, there are naysayers who say that the government needs this tax money because of its. Uh multi-trillion dollar deficit. And uh, now we're not putting as, as much money towards paying down that multi-trillion. Is it 14, 18?
3: Who knows? Right? What is it? Do you know? Yeah. So it's about a $15 trillion okay. in debt, right? So that's the accumulated deficits in the past years, which we've borrowed. And so the debt has piled up mm-hmm. and the debt is at a level that I think is too high. And our annual deficits, the shortfall between what we spend and what we bring in is also, I think is too high. But so here's the question does the tax reform mean that the federal government will bring in less money or will it bring in more money? And I'm here to tell you, I think it will result in the federal government bringing in more money. And the reason is we're going to have a larger economy on which to tax. So it is not the case that ever higher tax rates maximize the revenue for the federal government because as tax rates get too high, you reduce the incentive to work and save and invest. You have a smaller economy. There's less to tax. Case in point, Ronald Reagan famously cut taxes dramatically in the 1980s, right? If you look, I have gone back many times. If you look at 1980 and you look at 1990, the revenue collected by the federal government in 1990 in a single year was twice what was being collected in 1980, despite much lower tax rates. I mean, we took the individual rate from 28, I'm I'm sorry, from 70% down to 28. It ended up in the low 30s, but much, much lower rates and yet more revenue because we had a bigger economy. That's what I think we're going to do with this.
2: How much credit can the uh, policies of of the Trump administration take for this? Because I know there are people who say that is this because of what happened under president? These are just questions we always talk about and yeah, I thought sure. I would ask you. So yeah. how, m- how much credit can Donald Trump take for this and why? For
3: when you say this, you mean this sh- relatively strong economy? economy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I the think, I think a lot. Uh, now, honestly, I think Congress deserves some of the credit too. The president um, can't change the tax code by himself. And some of us worked really, really hard. <laughs> (laughs) on all the details and making sure we rounded up the votes. But look, I think there's two big categories of things that the president and Congress did that have contributed enormously. One, the massive excessive regulation of the Obama era, where they wanted to control every single thing any business could do, the terms under which you could do it. And it was tremendous regulatory overreach that was stifling economic growth. President Trump has been rolling that back administratively. Congress has been rolling that back through legislation. That's creating an environment that's much more conducive to growing your business and starting a new one. So that's number one. And number two, the president does absolutely deserve his share of the credit for the tax reform that is also encouraging all the activity that we're seeing, the investment, the growth. So uh, I think defies all logic to suggest that Barack Obama deserves credit for this because his policies were the very policies that were holding us back. It was under his presidency. When he got to do everything he wanted to do, remember the Democrats had complete control of the elected government in the early years. They did what they wanted to do, right? I mean, they raised taxes, took over healthcare, passed all kinds of massive regulation, and then we had really feeble growth. All of a sudden, new administration comes in. Congress works with the new President Trump. Roll back the regulation, lower taxes, reform our tax code, and the economy's booming And we're supposed to say that's Barack Obama's doing. (laughs) I'm not buying it.
2: Ryan writes in and he says he's from Philadelphia. So it's good that the signal is so strong today. Can you ask Senator Toomey about his stance with regards to the FBI memo and if he has confidence in Robert Mueller and his investigation? So that's a
3: multi-tiered question. What do you think? Yeah, but it's an important question. I'm I'm glad I'm glad it's come up. Um, So I think that there are important questions about whether the FBI decision to electronically surveil, to eavesdrop on members of the Trump campaign committee, whether those decisions were politically motivated and whether those decisions were held to the normal standard that the FBI uh, should be held to. This memo, I think, I haven't been able to read it. No senators have been allowed to read it. I think senators ought to be able to read it. But in any case, this memo uh, purports to shed light on this, right? It is the compilation of a whole lot of research and hearings and uh, investigation that the House Intelligence Committee has undergone. It's about four pages is my understanding. And I have reason to believe that it does, in fact, suggest that at least part of the FBI's rationale for wiretapping Trump campaign people was based on a dossier, which was created for opposition research purposes and paid for by the Clinton campaign. Okay. (laughs) If that's true, we ought to know it. Now, the FBI has pushed back and said, oh, you shouldn't release this. But it's interesting to note what the reason they are citing for why this shouldn't be released. What they're saying is there are errors of omission. Okay. So there's something missing. They didn't say there are factual errors in the report. They didn't say that there's a national security risk. If there is, by the way, that needs to be redacted. That would need to be blacked out. Um, But look, I think the American people need to know, did the FBI behave properly or was there a political bias there? And if there's omissions, if there's information that's missing then I also think we should release the Democratic report. They've done a different right. analysis. Release that yeah, too. Yeah, put them both out. And let the FBI come out and say, what's missing? Tell us what's missing. We need to get to the bottom of, absolutely need to get to the bottom of Russian interference in our election. We need to get to the bottom of whether or not the Trump campaign cooperated in some ways with Russians. So far, there's no evidence that they did. And we absolutely need to get to the bottom of whether the FBI was inappropriately wiretapping American citizens.
2: U.S. Senator Pat Toomey is in our studio. This is Jim of Pringle who has a question. Jim, go ahead.
3: Yeah, Senator, it's a pleasure to speak to you. I voted for
1: you, and I love the job you're doing, first off.
3: Thanks very much. Uh, I appreciate it.
1: But what I might ask you about is the DACA bill uh, that, that is proposed by the president. And I think it's got a lot of good aspects. Uh, two questions I have about that. One would be, if these young men are illegal, but they're willing to serve in the military and do two years, I think they should automatically become a United States citizen if they're willing to die for this country. I think that should actually be part of like a, a separate bill, because I think that's very important. because That shows loyalty to the country. Uh, and I think the second thing is these work permits for the dreamers that they want to let here and go to school. How about you implement a fee of like maybe 100 or $200 and take all that out of the $1.2 million and put it towards a border wall, which I think would give more funding for it. And third, I don't believe that Democrats are going to allow President Trump and the Republicans to pass an immigration bill because they don't want they want to keep it as a wedge issue and I believe they don't want to have them say look at President Trump and the Republicans are the ones who helped you I-
3: Jim you, you raise uh, very interesting very valid concerns I hope that the Democrats come to a different conclusion and the reason why they might is it's pretty amazing uh, if you if you were able to catch the president's State of the Union address the Fact is, the president is offering a more generous solution for the DACA people than Barack Obama ever did. President Trump is saying, first of all, he wants to make legal, permanent legal status here, not just for the 690,000 people who signed up for DACA, but for the 1.8 million people who were eligible, but two-thirds of whom decided not to. Not only that, he wants to go beyond just granting a legal status and saying within 10 to 12 years, you can become a U.S. citizen, full-blown U.S. citizen like everyone else. So it is a very, very generous offer. It applies to everyone who's eligible for DACA. It's U.S. citizenship. What more is there to offer people, despite the fact that they came here illegally? And the reason is, of course, they were children. They weren't responsible for that decision. In return for that, the president is saying, and and I have to say, I think this is a very reasonable proposition. In return for that, let's agree to spend the money to actually achieve border security on our southern border. That's a a portion of that would be a wall. Some of it is other forms of barrier. There's technology, there's manpower, there's a combination of tools so that we could actually control our border. And then finally, if we're going to allow this 1.8 million people to become newly American citizens, then we should also use this as an occasion to revise the chain migration, right? The ability of citizens to bring in extended family because that could multiply to many, many millions of people because everybody has an extended family. The reason this is going to be a difficult thing for the Democrats to walk away from is because it is so generous to these kids. They're not kids anymore, but they were children when they came here illegally. And the offer is to not just grant them legal status, but put them on a path to U.S. citizenships, remove from their head any cloud of worries about deportation, this is a very, very big deal for those folks. Now, there are immigrant activists in the left wing of the Democratic Party, who want all that and want to make sure we don't have border security. But how do you defend that? How do you defend the idea that, um, look, everything's fine except we got to make sure we don't have a secure border? I think that's a really hard proposition to defend. So I still think there's a chance of getting something done.
2: You do because this has been kicked around for so many decades. Yeah,
3: but there's this dynamic now that didn't occur before, which is right, President Obama's DACA, right, it was a decision, a unilateral executive decision that he did not have the authority did not have the legal authority to issue to protect this population when president trump came along and said this is going to end in march because it's illegal and it should be replaced with a legal legislation an actual law that was the right decision and it creates a uh, dynamic where it's going to be hard for the democrats to explain why they're not going along with us all
2: right, this is uh, Amy of uh, Scranton with a question for Senator Toomey.
0: Um, yes, my question is, it goes back to the the tax plan. And um, I had a question regarding police officers. You said, Senator Toomey, that, you know, uh, people were going to, under this plan, be able to get, uh, retain more of their money. Um, but they're also, uh, in the police officer case, are not going to be able to deduct their uniforms or cost of cleaning those. Do you think that that, the amount of money that they keep is going to sufficiently cover some of the expenses that uh, the American people are now not going to be
4: able to deduct.
3: Uh, Amy, that I, I was not aware of that. That's a pretty... Um Uh, detailed uh, provision, and I'm going to check on that. This is the first I've heard that police officers would no longer be able to deduct the cost of cleaning their uniforms. But to answer your question directly, I do suspect that the net savings is going to more than offset that added cost. There are some deductions that people are losing. That That's absolutely true. Amy is uh, sharing one that I was not uh, aware of. But um, as a general matter, we, we we know this because the folks who do this analysis, it's called the Joint Tax Committee, nonpartisan professionals who've analyzed this, they've come to the conclusion that the net effect after all is said and done uh, is a tax savings for about 93% of people who pay taxes, individuals and families. Uh, So yes, I think in the overwhelming vast majority of cases, police officers uh, like the rest of us will have a tax savings.
2: The issue of the exorbitant price of prescriptions was raised before you got here. Also, I wanted to talk to you in more broad terms about the possibility of a private industry getting together and, and tackling healthcare. Um, what what could be on the horizon to kind of curb or stem the cost of prescription drugs for people?
3: Well, uh, it's been a, a really, really challenging issue. One of the ways that I have focused uh, in, in my time in the Senate is to try to expedite the process by which generic drugs can come into the marketplace and compete. Once generic drugs are able to compete with the branded prescription drugs, prices collapse, right? And and generic drugs are so, so much more affordable. And in many cases, there are big barriers to bringing a new generic drug onto the market. So I'm hoping that we'll be able to make some more progress. I think we've got a really good FDA director, Scott Gottlieb, the new director of the Food and Drug Administration. Really smart guy, understands this, wants to make sure that consumers have lower costs and more options. So I'm encouraged by that. You made an allusion to uh, a big story in the last week or so about three ginormous companies, right? Berkshire Hathaway, JP Morgan Chase, and um, is that Amazon? Amazon? Is that the third? Mm-hmm. That they are uh, have announced that they intend to launch an initiative for their own employees to provide healthcare. I'm really excited about that. I really am because I'm in favor of experimenting with different payment models, different delivery systems. We'll continue to uh, improve actual healthcare through technology and through the use of data, and that will continue apace. But we have enormous inefficiencies. We have enormous costs. We have all kinds of distortions of capacity. I'm, I'm very curious to see if these guys can come up with a better system, if it works for their employees. I mean, they have hundreds of thousands of employees. That's
2: Pennsylvania U.S. Senator Pat Toomey. You are listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications.
1: You're listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications, hosted by Sue Henry
2: there is probably no bigger purveyor of novelty records in history than the legendary Dr. Demento. Born in Minnesota to a musical family, young Barrett Hansen was drawn into the works of Spike Jones, and it wasn't long until he was hooked on songs that made him laugh. Following the completion of his master's, he spent time as a roadie for rock band Spirit and Canned Heat before finding his niche in radio and developing his persona of Dr. Demento. His show gave many musicians of the past who may have been forgotten new life, and he also fostered the career of young Weird Al Yankovic after accepting a tape from him during an appearance. His show was nationally syndicated and aired Sunday nights on hundreds of radio stations across the country, introducing the masses to fish heads, junk food junkie, and even grandma got run over by a reindeer. Producer John Caffiero approached Dr. Demento with a novel idea of his own, a covers record featuring punk rock artists paying tribute to his legendary career. The project took several years and was recently released. It's called Dr. Demento Covered in Punk and includes Weird Al lovingly covering the Ramones song Beat on the Brat as well as contributions by the Misfits, the late Adam West, and Caffiero's own group, Osaka Pop Star, covering fish heads. We spoke to both this week. So how did you persuade the doc that this was a fine idea, and how did you persuade these artists to cut, these songs, which of, of course I would be sweating bullets because they're so well loved, you know, like shaving cream. Who doesn't love that song? Oh,
4: I don't know. I, I certainly love it. It was the, my introduction to the whole world of Dr. Demento. I first heard it when I was about six or seven years old and haven't looked back. I've continued to just get further and further into uh, the rabbit hole of the, the world the Doc has created ever since. And this project is just the next step forward and extension of it. It's uh, like everything else that I do, it really is a labor of love. It's something that I'm genuinely passionate about. And I think that that comes across with the people that I work with, that sincerity and that belief in the project. And I think it's contagious and infectious. And that's really, I think, how the doc became interested and the various artists. I think people just believed in the concept and um, the end result speaks for itself. I couldn't be happier
5: with the way that it turned out.
2: What do you think, Doc? I think that uh, novelty records are kind of punk rock in their own right, aren't they? They're kind of rebellious, and they of—
5: Oh, absolutely. You know, I played the Sex Pistols and uh, especially the Ramones when they first came on the scene back in 1976, so this was a natural for me to get back into it.
2: I understand that uh, in your lifetime, you've always been attracted to music, even when you were a little kid out there in the Midwest, you were collecting records and, uh,
5: you know... I started real early. Really, right. My, my folks had a record collection. My dad played the piano, so there was always music around the house.
2: And uh, when, when did you find your first novelty songs back in the day when you were a kid? What really struck you? And, and why did you take to these novelty songs and these off
5: tracks? Well, these well uh, uh, when I was four years old, my dad brought home uh, a copy of Cocktails for Two by Spike Jones, which was brand new at the time. And that's got gunshots and all kinds of noises. And it's fast and fast and loud, like punk rock. So, so uh, being four years old, I was immediately attracted to that. Uh, and, uh, just heard more funny songs along with all other kinds of music. As I grew up, uh, I would, uh, get the humor along with everything else. I was a a rock and roll fan in the golden era, the 50s. Uh, I loved Elvis and Blue Suede Shoes and Little Richard and all that stuff. But uh, at that time, there was always funny songs on the radio along with Little Richard and uh, whatever. Uh, So there was almost always a a novelty song on the radio, whether it was the Monster Mash or, or, or... the purple people eater or transfusion. Transfusion, I'm just a solid mess of contusions. Never, never, never going to speed again. Pass the clear to me, Barrett. Uh, nervous, nervous there.
2: Yeah, and that's how you got demented, right? It was over that song that somebody called you demented in the first place, right?
5: Yeah, that's a short version of the story.
2: <laughs> and that's good to know. Now, uh, we all uh, we all love radio, all three of us that are talking now. Let's let's not kid ourselves. Uh, sure. How did you combine your, your love of these beautiful novelty records and in these off-tracks with a a desire to be on the radio. How did you know this was your calling?
5: Well, I I love playing records, so I thought, why don't I play records for other people? I would amuse my friends with records that I had, and and then I got the chance to play records for the Sock Hops at my high school in Minneapolis. Uh, After the basketball game, people take off their shoes and they dance in the gym, and so I had the most records of anybody in the school, so I I brought my own, and uh, uh, oh, there was one time, uh, Jailhouse Rock by Elvis had just come out. And uh, I, I found out that it was going to be played on Dick Clark's American Bandstand the next day. So I rushed home and taped it on a tape recorder before the record was available in Minneapolis. I brought the tape to the op, and as soon as Elvis started to sing, every girl in the whole place went, Elvis! Help! So I, I felt a little feeling of power there. So, thank you, King. Uh, that 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 was a, a moment of inspiration that led me, uh, sometime later, to become a disc jockey.
2: Now, when you um, were, were first syndicated in the seventies, how did that happen for you? Like, how did somebody say we got to get this guy on across the country? In the the old days of syndication, where they used to, how did your thing even get delivered to the stations? Was it on record or was it on tape?
5: It was originally on tape. Uh, then it was on vinyl discs for quite a while, mm-hmm. and then finally on CD. But it all—it was purely a matter of ratings. Uh, uh, there, after I'd been on the on the radio for about two and a half years, uh, suddenly looked at the new rating book, and there I was, the number one rated show of any kind uh, in Los Angeles on Sunday night. Uh, beat all the AM stations and everybody. So uh, people thought, oh, that that might play, that might be good to play in Wilkes-Barre or maybe Peoria.
2: (laughs) It was on in Scranton on the radio station for many, many years as as you are actually right about that. And, um, when you were playing these songs at first, uh, you know, some of them are a little bit uh, risque. They're a little bit oh, yeah. edgy. Do you, when you look at the culture today, and it's such a PC culture, are there any songs that you played that you think you could not get away with in this day and age?
5: There are a few. Not too many, but there are a few. Uh, it's oddly enough, uh, uh, songs making fun of gay people were... We're kind of okay when I started. Then, then they were really on the outs. But now, at least certain ones, people seem to be able to accept again as as part of the past, like C.B. Savage and songs like that, and then Big brucey Woothy, and <laughs> but, but that was that was actually a minor hit back in the in the 70s. Big Bruce. So and and those those I can get away with once in a while. It kind of all depends on on the attitude. But you're, you're right. There, uh, so anything having to do in any... Anyway, way with race relations is real touchy.
2: For sure. I remember you had a song, um, She's Big and Round. Can you get away with that one anymore or no?
5: Oh, well, uh, <laughs> I, I, I can see how a certain women especially would be upset with that. I have not heard any... Uh, any static over that, it, of course, that only gets on maybe every couple of years sure, or Sure, so.
2: but I remember it. Uh, John, yeah. the, I want to talk to you, too, about putting this together because, sure. man, what a lineup on this thing from uh, the the cutting-edge people like the lovely Colleen Green, who is awesome, To Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I'm a fan myself. Oh, I my love gosh, Colleen's I love stuff. her. She's fabulous. Um Philadelphia. We have to get Philadelphia in here because of the Eagles. Philly's own the dead milkman around here,
4: and Philly boy
2: Roy himself. Oh my goodness gracious! So you knew in advance this was going to happen, and this is how you drew it up in practice, right?
4: Yeah, well, I kind of was the architect of the entire thing. It was really this crazy idea that I had that I just wanted to see come to fruition, and I built it brick by brick. I mean, literally, each and every aspect of this record from start to finish is something that I did personally, and um, it really was a labor of love, but it was certainly a huge undertaking. The project went on from the time I first pitched it to Dr. Demento to actually having it 100% completed and ready to go to press was about four years, but granted, I worked on other things in between, so it was a little bit of on and off, but it still was quite the undertaking, and literally, you've got 33 new tracks produced specifically for this record, plus a total of 64 tracks with the whole radio show that encompasses it, because it's a two-hour, it's really two hours and four minutes, two discs on CD, three discs on vinyl, program where it's just a bizarro episode, a punk rock-themed episode of the Dr. Demento show, complete with the opening theme the jingles, the bumpers, and the doc himself front and back announcing all the tracks, sharing interesting factoids and anecdotes about the songs or the bands, um, and then the tracks themselves. So it's really a a, a whole world that you get, Um, not to mention there's a rich booklet that's got tons of artwork, liner notes, a lot of great stuff to learn and read and just have fun with about the whole world of Dr. Demento that I hope people enjoy, but... um, Really, every band on there is somebody that I thought would be a great contribution to the record or have the right personality to represent the different shades of gray in punk rock and then just mix up with some cool personalities.
2: Now, this uh, combining of Weird Al Yankovic with this classic Beat on the Brat by the Ramones, uh, how was that envisioned and uh, did Weird Al jump at the chance?
4: I always wanted, I really did envision Al as sort of the finale of the record. I wanted to see Al do sort of a quote-unquote demented spin on a punk classic for the grand finale, being that Al is the most successful funny music artist of all time and that he was born of the Dr. Demento show. So when I pitched Al on doing Beat on the Brat, he loved the idea. He loved the idea of the record generally. He's a huge fan of the Ramones and was also really interested in having the opportunity to do a quote-unquote straight yet demented song, because we both agreed that the original lyrics to Beat on the Brat were demented enough, just as they were written by the Ramones, so there was no reason for him to parody the lyrics. And uh, Al was an absolute pleasure to work with, and I had the honor of really—it's my band, Osaka Pop Star—that backs him up with Al on lead vocals and accordion. I'm um, the Cadence backing vocal behind him, and we had a blast recording that in the studio.
2: It was great. Beautiful, Doc. What did you think about Weird Al when he first started to contact you with his
5: uh, odd ideas? Well, he sent me a tape, a cassette tape that had been made on uh, one of those early cassette recorders with the piano keys on the front uh, and the self-contained microphone, and he was able to make it sound pretty darn good. He, he had already figured out, before he sent me the very first tape, he had already figured out how to make his voice project uh, so that you could hear the lyrics, and the lyrics were funny right away from that very first song, uh, and then they kept getting better and better, so uh, uh, that, that was a no-brainer once I started getting things from him.
2: Well, he must give you a lot of credit for his giant success. I mean, for years and years and years, he has managed to stay fresh and put out things that people still find are are amusing. So is he sending you some $20 bills in the mail or anything? (laughs)
5: I don't know about that, but, but he gives he gives me uh, lots of props. Uh, he's always good about saying how he started uh, by listening to the radio with his head tucked his head in the radio tucked under the pillow. Uh, because you know list, he he discovered the show uh, just tuning across the dial, and then he had the he had the show on his bedside radio once, and I just happened to be playing. Davy's got the cutest little dingy in the navy, and his mother happened to come into the room. You turn that off! I will not have that filth in the house. And, uh, so he had to uh, conceal it for a while, but. He'd hear, he'd hear Alan Sherman, Spike Jones, Stan Freeberg, all those great parodists and satirists of the past, and he, he gradually thought, hey, I can do that. And meanwhile, he was learning to play the accordion, not so much uh, by learning "Old Sola Mio and, and Lady of Spain, uh, but by. He had bought a new Elton John album, Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, and he decided, I'm going to teach myself to play every song on that album on the accordion. So that's kind of how he developed his accordion style.
2: You know what? It is so great for both of you to take the time to be with us today. I can't think of a finer pairing of people to appear... On radio that we could talk to about Dr. Demento covered in punk, then Dr. Demento himself. I'm a, as I've already confessed to you, Dr. Demento. I'm a, a longtime fan of yours, and you had did, you did so much to make our lives uh, so much happier. So thank you.
5: Um, oh, thank you, Sue. It was great to hear you say that.
2: And uh, John Caffiero, you two have brought me uh, so much joy <laughs> with your work and oh, uh, you. I, just the convergence here I, I find to be uh, phenomenal and I hope people check out these discs. They're wonderful. You have a great series of artists on them. Everyone from Joan Jett to Brack from Space Coast. I mean, you <laughs> yeah. can't lose that way, right?
4: <laughs> Not at all. You've got pretty much everybody under the sun here. There's, there's definitely something for everybody and and there's uh, an, eclectic, uh, an eclectic personality for each and every taste. There's, it's pretty exciting. I'm really, really genuinely thrilled with the way this project turned out and all of the great people that came on board to be a part of it.
2: So are you going to be with the Misfits in, in May during this uh, reunion show?
4: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's going to be amazing. I mean, I'm, I'm here based on the East Coast, so we're all originally from New Jersey and um, we're very excited. I mean, it's 34 years in the making now, 34 years since the original Misfits played their hometown, Whew. and uh, literally it'll be the first time they've ever played an arena in their hometown, so we're very excited about the show. It's May 19th at the Prudential Center. It went on sale on Friday, and it sold out on knew Friday. Knew it.
2: Yeah, I knew it would be, and uh, <laughs> it's, it's a phenomenal thing. So um, I-, I can't thank you both enough for being on the show today. It was so fabulous, and uh, the best of luck to the two of you.
4: Thank you Thanks. so much, Sue. And uh, if any of your listeners are interested and want to know more about the record, they could sample tracks or order online at CoveredInPunk.com, dot com. And we hope they'll check us out. And uh, would just love to say that we're thrilled that it's now the number one record, or the number one comedy album in Billboard for two consecutive weeks.
2: And it deserves to be there. Thank you.
5: Thank you, buddy. And also check out DrDemento.com. dot com. I still do a new show, brand new show every single week. DrDemento.com. dot com.
2: Wind up your radios.
5: Yes. See you Don't bye. forget to stay demented.
2: De- 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 That's National Radio Hall of Fame inductee Dr. Demento and John Cafiero, producer of Dr. Demento Covered You're listening in punk. to special listening Edition to special on Intercom edition Communications on Intercom hosted by communications. Sue Henry. Professional poker player Annie Duke is one busy lady. She was working her way to a PhD at the University of Pennsylvania and nearly finished when she decided to follow in her brother's footsteps and began playing poker in Billings, Montana, where she lived with her young family. She also played in Las Vegas at the same time. She moved to Vegas full-time in 1994 and played in the World Series of Poker, where she was very successful over a series of years. Duke is now a full-time speaker and strategist talking about her experience playing poker in broader terms and encouraging people to use cognitive thinking skills along with better strategies in order to succeed. Her new book is called Thinking in Bets, making smarter decisions when you don't have the facts. She joined us recently to talk about her work. We did
0: play cards when I was growing up, but not poker. I I really learned it from my brother. My brother, when he was 18, went off to New York, um, supposedly to to go to college, um, and he ended up actually becoming a professional poker player, and quite a good one, I might add. He has many, many championships. So when I was at the end of graduate school, um, I found myself um, taking some time off, and I needed some money, And my brother actually suggested that he would mentor me in poker. He'd already been playing for about 10 years by then and was really one of the best players in the world at that point. So I had a really great teacher.
2: Are women welcome at these
0: tables? Well, I guess it depends on what you mean by welcome. Um, (laughs) I mean, we're certainly allowed to sit down and play. um, But, you know, it's definitely a, a boys club about in a, in a big-time, professional, high-stakes poker tournament, only about 3% of the field is women. You know, and when you're playing in a, a poker tournament, there's no HR department. So, um, you know, it's, it's kind of what you would expect from that environment. But, you know, for somebody who really loves poker, it was also, like, super exciting to be engaging in that game. And you know what the best revenge is? Winning. <laughs> yeah. And I also do want to say, like, some... There are amazing, amazing, amazing men who play poker who are incredibly dear friends of mine. I do not want to paint with a broad brush here.
2: Okay. And I'm thinking uh, from uh, the standpoint that we always hear uh, women have a great intuition. How does that play into a poker approach? Does that help you?
0: Well, I think it depends on what you mean by intuition. I'm not a big fan of sort of the idea of going with your gut. I, I do think that your gut is certainly informed by the experiences of your life, but you should always check that against reality and actually try to make sure whether your gut makes sense. So you want those two things to collide. And then hopefully as you train better decision-making, your gut instincts just tend to get more accurate. The thing that I think that women are better at is reading other people's emotions. And reading other people's emotions at the poker table is actually really, really important. And I think that women just in general, are, are that, that happens to be a, a skill that they are superior at, in my opinion.
2: Now, when did you think that you would take a, a skill like uh, playing poker and then translate it into uh, the broader topic about uh, strategy and decision-making?
0: Well, so here's a little thing about my history that makes it not so crazy. Um, Before I was a professional poker player, I was getting my PhD at the University of Pennsylvania in cognitive science. Uh, So I was actually studying um, the way that we learn uh, by... You know, the things that turn, you know, the, the evidence that sort of is out there in our lives. So I was, I was actually studying this problem of learning um, and how you make decisions about the world uh, for my Ph.D. I then took sort of this left turn into poker. Uh, I became a pro in 94 obviously some of my graduate work was kind of informing the way that I was thinking about poker. And then in 2002, uh, a little bit through sheer luck, I was asked to speak to a group of um, people who were in finance about how poker might inform decision making. And that, that was the first moment that I really started to think in an explicit way of how could I teach this? Like, how could I teach kind of this collision of cognitive science and poker um, in a way that's really accessible to people to really help them improve their decision making? And so I was I've been doing it for quite a while.
2: Well, how can it then? Can you just give us a little bit of insight? Because some people look at uh, even the word bet and um, they think it's it's risky and they think that uh, it's it's not for them and, and they, they don't want to try it. But I would believe underlying every day we are making bets, actually, even if we don't find it tasteful, you know?
0: Yeah, so I, I think that the problem is that we think about bets in the way that we think about them happening in, in a casino or betting on the lottery or a horse race or something like that. But what the actual definition of a bet is, it's just decision, a decision that's informed by beliefs that you have about the world on how you think the future might turn out. And that decision involves investing some sort of limited resource um, that you think is then you know, going to improve because of the decision that you made. The limited resource doesn't have to be money, number one. It could be your health or your happiness or your time. Um, it always involves uncertainty about how the future is going to turn out because we never know how the, un- the future is going to turn out so basically think about it like here's a bet you're in a restaurant and you're trying to decide whether to order the chicken dish or the fish dish That's a bet because you can only order one or the other so it's a limited resource and you're trying to decide which future is going to make you happier. The one where you have the chicken or the one that you have the fish and it's informed by your beliefs about like the restaurant and how you think they're going to cook it and what you think you're going to like. So maybe you decide on the chicken and you think that's going to work out and maybe it does and you know your future is happier but maybe the chicken is super dry you don't have any control over that. So even something as simple as like should I order the chicken or the fish is a bet that's interesting to me and
2: i guess you're right it's all around us now how how do our past practices annie influence our our future about risk taking or betting i mean some of us may be a little bit more reticent maybe we grew up in families who said you just don't do that but how do we get away from those kind of inherent biases that we have about stuff
0: so I think that there's a couple of things um, that are problematic just in terms of what our history is. Um, the first is that uh, once we have a belief about something, we tend to think it's right. And then we look for all sorts of reasons to confirm that it's right. And we we really don't like to change our minds. You can see this in politics right now, for sure, right? People have beliefs about what's right or wrong. And no matter what you tell them, you can't change their mind. And, that, and that's true for us as well. So that that's kind of the first problem that we need to get past. Um, So we need to be, you know, find a way to be more open-minded. And one of the ways to do that is really to think about things as bets. If I say to you, okay, so you believe that you shouldn't do this, are you willing to bet on it? (laughs) That that will really change whether you, you know, well, how much are you willing to bet on this belief that you have? It causes you to kind of moderate your beliefs, which allows you to be more open-minded and more flexible and you're thinking, which is really what you're trying to do. You don't want to be, like, caught in a groove, which is what you're talking about, right? And the other thing is the way that you can be willing to kind of think about how do, I, how do I take on more risk is by acknowledging that it exists, by acknowledging that the future isn't uncertain. Sometimes a weather advisory comes on when you're in the <laughs> middle of talking, and that's totally okay. You know, sometimes you go through a red light and you get through safely, and sometimes you go through a green light and you don't. So really focus on the fact that the way our lives turn out is determined by two things. One is the quality of the decisions. That we have something to say about. But the other thing that determines it is just your luck. So be okay with that. Don't try to get control over the luck because you can't. And then I think you become more open-minded to, to really being flexible in your thinking.
2: Is there a way to get the luck to
0: come to you? <laughs> well, there's not a way to get the luck to come to you. But what there is a way to do is make decisions that increase the probability that it will go your way. So, you know, you can make a decision where things are only going to go your way 10% of the time, or you can make a decision where things are going to go your way 50% of the time. So what we want to be doing is trying to make the decision that gets things to go our way 50% of the time. And that means that our decisions have to be well-informed, which means that our beliefs have to be really good. Which means we need to be really open-minded. And we need to be really open-minded in particular to information out there and opinions out there that disagree with us. And I think you'll agree, what we're seeing right now is that people aren't too good at that. Yeah. So the better you can be at that, at being willing to hear people who disagree with you, then you will that's how you sort of in, in in the way that you said it get the luck to come to you but what you're really doing is just increasing the chances that things go well
2: and you're also uh, learning about the other side by doing that and kind of picking somebody's brain and and opening Mm your mind to hear the way they see it which i always find to be eye-opening and maybe there's something in their their discussion that i can take away and use in the future if i listen to what they have to say even if i don't agree
0: and you know what? Your life is going to be happier for it because you're not going to be so combative with everybody around you. I mean, you're just going to get along with people better when you're more open-minded to their opinions.
2: You do realize you're trying to kill my career as a talk show host, right?
0: <laughs> no, I'm trying to help your career as a talk show host. Okay. So you have lots of people who come on who disagree with you, and then you can have really cool discussions that inform your audiences. <laughs> All right. I want
2: to talk to you about something which uh, you must have felt a couple of times at the, at the table, and that is failure right because when you're playing Uh cards you don't win every hand right so you have to learn how to accept the fact that you lose the hand and then what do you do how do you move on from that and how do you learn from your failures in order to make you a better person overall well so i think that the
0: way that you get past that is to redefine what it means to win or to lose so i could define losing as i lost a hand right? That's how I could define losing. I could define winning as, well, I just won this particular hand. But what if I define winning as I want to be the best learner possible, I want to get everything I can out of every decision that I make and become way better at it. Then what happens is that when I lose, I don't know whether I lost or not until I go back and look at the decision. And the fact that I'm even going back and looking at the decision instead of worrying so much about whether I won or lost that particular hand makes me a winner because I'm turning everything into a learning opportunity. Because here, here's the fact, Sue. Like, I can have aces, which is the very best possible hand, and I can play it perfectly. And luck can intervene, and I can still lose. So hopefully I don't view that loss as a failure. Hopefully instead I say, well, let me go back and see if I played the hand well. And if I played the hand well, then that's great. I didn't fail. And if I played the hand poorly, I didn't fail as long as I learned from how I played it poorly, and I use it to change my decisions going forward. That's Annie
2: Duke, professional poker player and author of Thinking and Bets, making smarter decisions when you don't have the facts. You are listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications.
1: Thanks for listening to Special Edition, a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personality shaping the stories. (sighs)
3: Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? We make getting custom window treatments a minor project with major impact.